Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Currency Exchange, a NatWest podcast series all about foreign exchange markets. I'll be your host today. I'm Brian Dangerfield, and I co-head the G10 FX strategy team here at NatWest. And today, I'm happy to be joined by Galvin Chia, who's joining us from Singapore, who covers emerging market foreign exchange for us uh, here at NatWest. Galvin, thanks very much for joining. Hey, thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. So... Uh, one of the big themes for 2024 is, is on the geopolitics side, and specifically elections. There are uh, many major elections uh, taking place throughout the world in 2024 that have uh, the potential to really change up the political and uh, you know, international relations landscape. Um, for those of us here in the U.S., uh, the Iowa caucus was this week, which sort of kicks off the primary season in the U.S. And so it's a reminder, maybe a, so a sobering reminder, whether we're ready or not, the 2024 election season uh, is really kicking into gear. Uh, and there are major elections happening all over the world. But we've actually already had one big election take place already, and that is in Taiwan. And so very happy to be joined by Galvin this week to talk about developments in Asia. And I want to start with Taiwan. Uh, if you could set the background for us, Galvin, uh, what happened in the election that happened over this past weekend? And what do you think it means for uh, broader relations between both Taiwan and mainland China and also between China and the West? Yeah, I think uh, it's it's really interesting because, as you mentioned, right, this, sort of, this idea that politics, moving markets, I think would really, uh, what we think really should hit markets in full force this year and should be a, a pretty prominent theme throughout the course of 24, right? Um, so just over the last weekend, what we had were presidential elections, which happen every four years uh, in Taiwan. And at the same time, that's accompanied by the sort of parliamentary elections. So uh, we, we, what we had, uh, you know, to, to long story short, was that the Democratic Progressive Party, uh, the, their candidate, who is the current uh, vice president, of the uh, of the island, uh, uh, William Lai, he basically was uh, sort of the polling favorite. Uh, although his lead was a, was kind of narrowing uh, uh, into the end of the poll, uh, uh, into the end of the opinion polling period, but he came up with a pretty decisive win o over the next candidate uh, from sort of uh, from the Nationalist Party, the KMT. Uh, uh, in the in the parliament, it was a little more mixed, and I think it's been sort of the first hung parliament that we've seen in 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 just over, in in over a decade or so. So basically, the implication is that while uh, you know the DPP does have the presidency, you know their ability to push through uh, so you know some of these sort of legislative processes uh, is going to be you know could potentially be met by uh, some uh, some resistance in the parliament. So I think, long story short, though, you know the DPP. Has uh, over the last couple of years, right? Over the you know, this is the third presidency that they'll they'll, they'll be uh, they'll be sitting in. It's pretty unprecedented in Taiwan's uh, sort of electoral history. Uh, but what that means is that you know they've his, they, they've been leaning sort of more towards the U.S. And I think sort of the initial knee jerk reaction was okay. You know, maybe this means that we we'll get a little bit more of a, a heightened geopolitical tensions uh, over the coming administration's uh, uh, period in office. So that's I think that's what markets have sort of thought about, uh, but still kind of early days there to, to see the sort of full ramifications. Yeah, I think and I think this is a point that you've made as well, is that this is really a continuity government as much as anything. You know, the, the, the former vice president is now won the election for president. And another point I wanted to ask you about is. Uh, I believe the current president in the, the election just passed, uh, the, the winning candidate also didn't win with majority. Is that correct? So maybe the ability, as you said, um, the, the mandate necessarily to move in a much more, say, uh, you know, much further in the direction of the West is maybe not as strong as it might have been otherwise. Is that a fair interpretation, you think? 
Yeah, I think you know you're right. Like he didn't. So so William Lai, who won, I guess who who who, who won the elections this round, uh, he didn't win with a majority, but he won with enough of a majority, uh, or rather the simple majority over the other candidates uh, to 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 be elected. So I guess in in that sense, there isn't too much. I mean, you know, some pundits across the across the street have said, oh, you know, that might question sort of the legitimacy. I think ultimately, though, like there are constraints, right, to to this, and I think this is the crux of it: is that there are constraints to what. Taiwanese administration can do, and, and and sort of what what the what the the tendency is, and what the desires are of the Taiwan people. Uh, so I think you know, on in in the press, you get this sort of titanic struggle between um, a democracy uh, and, and authoritarianism, or war and, and and peace. But I don't think it's ever so clear cut, right? Because you know, despite this idea that oh, you know, Taiwan has a lot of these like sort of independent minded or, or separatist minded elements, uh, uh, the polls do show that you know, for the ma- vast majority of people over the last you know, five, 10 years, people just really want a variation to the status quo. People want to, to live their lives and, and, and earn their wages and, and, and get by. And that's kind of the sense that we got as well when we were in Taiwan, sort of uh, in October last year, meeting clients. And, and, and they thought that, you know, for them, politics at the end of the day meant business as usual, uh, and it meant they could go on with their, with their lives. I, on the other hand, I think, you know, it, it, it does seem like the, the, the US and, and China are, are very, very aware of the potential for things to spiral uh, into a uh, sort of broader conflict. There's a lot of saber rattling that still goes on. But at the same time, I think, you know, what's also important is not just about Taiwan as an independent actor, but it's caught in this sort of three-way between, you know, as you mentioned, Brian, uh, Taiwan, the US, and China. And right now, over the last couple of months, I think it's interesting to note that in this context, t- uh, Chinese-US relationship, the, the China, China-US relationship is a bit, uh, is improving. Right, uh, you know, we've had a year of pretty terrible relationship, and I think they're definitely working hard at very high levels of the government to try to reestablish comp- contact, you know, not only diplomatically uh, but militarily as well. So I think that should hopefully constrain the extent to which tensions at least can rise across the Taiwan Straits in the sort of you know the next maybe six to eight months, you know, that sort of time period. I think that is good news to hear as geopolitical conflict seems to be uh, increasing in uh, multiple fronts uh, in the uh, in the geopolitical space. Uh, maybe a, a, a continuation of the status quo, not necessarily a big uh, moment of escalation necessarily around the corner, I think would be uh, good news on this front. Uh, very interesting. You mentioned the improvement of relations, or at least the, the signs of trying to thaw relations between the U.S. Biden administration uh, and the Chinese government, because, of course, we have an election coming up here in the U.S. in a few uh, a few months time in November that will, of course, provide a, a big opportunity to potentially shake up things uh, from our side uh, of the Pacific Ocean. So uh, I do want to turn now more closely to mainland China and talk about some of the economic activity data that we've seen there. I think it's fair to say to start out 2024, the data have been disappointing, uh, that generally, you know, we've come in a little bit softer than expectations. And as that data has come in a little softer, it sounds like uh, officials there, uh, both from the monetary side and the fiscal side, may be thinking about additional stimulus to try and support the growth backdrop. From an asset perspective, it doesn't seem like the market is all that fussed about new stimulus seems to be taking their cue a little bit more from the weaker data. Is that how you're seeing things? And how are you thinking about the Chinese currency as we face these sort of different signals with growth a little bit weaker, but stimulus expectations may be rising a bit? Yeah, I think actually it's a really good contrast that you mentioned that. So, you know, let's say with Taiwan, where, uh, you know, the, the sort of the geopolitical risk premium on assets on, on stuff like Taiwanese equities and the Taiwan dollar has actually been in flux. And some of our own analysis suggests that it's actually 
it, it's pro-cyclical with the market. So as the market sort of deteriorates, that risk premium increases and vice versa. But in contrast, what's been a very strong constant uh, in you know Chinese assets is this huge risk premium that's just been escalating and escalating and escalating. And despite the fact you know you get ups and downs in Chinese data, uh, as you sort of mentioned, um, but asset prices sort of keep you know, heading lower equities keep are, are, are weakening. Uh, bond inflows have actually started to tone a little bit, but but you know, and and the currency remains weak. So it's kind of a really mixed bag, and it's sort of like this this eternal you know uh, uh, falling knife that everyone sort of seems to be waiting to catch. You know, the the, the data was was also a bit of a mixed bag as well. On the one hand. You had a, a pretty, you know, like a, a encouraging signs, I would say, you know, in terms of the growth numbers from from stuff like industry uh, and, and and some 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 parts of investment. But on the other hand, you know, uh, uh, consumer activity remains a little bit uh, sort of constrained. Uh, and and ultimately, right, the, the one thing that people keep, you know, have have, have sort of have turned their gaze to and are fixated on is the property sector, and that continues to show quite a bit of weakness, right, in terms of investment. Uh, and particularly in terms of prices, right? So again, it's a really mixed bag. Overall, the growth in 2023 was 5.2%, which, uh, according to the Chinese authorities, you know, beat their ex, uh, their, their target of 5%, which for them was good. But it, it it's just it's a very difficult time, I think, to be to be to be watching China uh, in this current phase. I think it's it's difficult to really assess how well or how poorly the economy is doing, like. 5.2% at the headline number, that's better than 5% what they targeted. But at the same time, you know, everyone is saying that investor confidence is weak, the property market still headed south. Uh, so so they need more stimulus. And it seems like the central bank sometimes is, is caught up right between those two narratives. They think that, you know, uh, the, the economy needs more stimulus. And so they might cut interest rates, they might, uh, you know, prompt the, the sort of fiscal uh, and, and credit levers. But on the other hand, um, you know, GDP numbers are coming in line, so so we don't need to do anything about it. I think the market does seem a little bit caught up in that messaging as well, uh, and and the default seems to be to be just uh, to stay bearish on, on Chinese assets in general. Yeah, I think you just alluded to where I was going to go with my next question, which is thinking specifically about the currency. Um, you mentioned this risk premium sort of in Chinese assets as a whole um, and the very low rates in China and the prospects for rates to continue to be cut further. Um, how are you thinking about the Chinese currency, you know, uh, you know with these drivers as, as a backdrop? Yeah, I think that's actually a really good point because, you know, in this current interest rate uh, driven environment in FX, uh, you know, lower interest rates in China would naturally mean sort of weakening pressure on on the onshore and offshore RMB, right? And I think that's definitely uh, at the forefront of, of of the authorities' minds as well, which, which, you know, there are lots of speculations about why they might not be cutting, but, but that was raised as one of the sort of pundits uh, sort of rationales as to why they may not be cutting. I think ultimately, you know, the, the Chinese currency does seem to me to be uh, sort of pointed a little bit weaker, you know, probably in the 720 region right now. Actually, no, well, we're about 720 right now. So, so, so it seems to be about right where it is, I think. Um, and I think ultimately, though, so much of this has been driven, not only, uh, has basically been driven by the dollar. The moves over the last you know, two, three months or so have been driven by the dollar. But at the same time, we've also had very forceful intervention by the PBOC. You know, not just sort of signaling, uh, getting getting banks to what we think are uh, intervene in 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 in, in currency markets, uh, sort of draining liquidity, squeezing out the short sellers. I think that's helped sort of sort of cap some of that weakness. But ultimately, I think the bias so far in terms of the, the overall policy stance is that they probably do want to keep the, the the currency on on the weaker side, given the fact that you know all signs are really pointing towards China's uh, sort of industrial policy trying to revitalize. 
uh, its its industrial and export engines. So in that case, you know, having a weak currency does help. Yeah, and from the currency perspective, you know, the dollar CNH, dollar CMY exchange rate, there's two sides of that coin, right? There's the China side, but of course there's the dollar side. And as you mentioned, the dollar side has been doing a lot of the heavy lifting recently. You know, as we've discussed in our previous podcasts, so you're talking more and focus on the dollar. The dollar weakened pretty substantially against a lot of global currencies in December. We came into 2024 thinking that move was perhaps overdone directionally over the medium term, probably the right direction towards more dovish Fed and weaker dollar on balance, but probably felt a bit overextended in the end of December. And we spent most of the month of January bouncing back in a lot of cases. And so I think you've seen some upside uh, to start the year in uh, in, do- in the, the dollar versus Chinese exchange rate, uh, simply because of those developments in, in the dollar front. But I think from the China perspective, as you mentioned, there's, you know, there is that risk premium, there are those lower rates uh, to contend with. If we can expand a little bit, I did want to ask you about India. I know this is you know, an economy that you've been constructive on uh, for quite a while. And I think the market narrative on India, uh, on Indian assets has really been improving. I think the overall backdrop has been improving, but the currencies remained in a pretty tight range. First of all, do you agree that the market narrative may be improving a bit in terms of the fundamentals on India? Uh, and do you think that's something that could lead the currency to maybe appreciate a bit more clearly uh, after months of fairly stable price action in, in dollar rupee? Yeah, I think it, it, you're right. Like, I think the market is very optimistic, and I think you know it's got good reasons to be. It, you know, India to us looks like one of the prime, you know, the, the foremost growth drivers uh, in the world, right? Whereas that was previously China, you know, high single digits, right? Like that's really looking like like it's going to be India, like last year and probably over the next couple of years as well. I think uh, uh, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned sort of in, in the context of these dollar gyrations, because over the course of this last cycle, you know, the last two and a half years or so, so much of the price uh, movements in, in Asian currencies has been driven by this global dollar cycle. And to the point where it's been just incredibly frustrating to try to think about, you know, uh, uh, the relative outperformers and underperformers in Asia, because it's all just been so much about, you know, uh, uh, correlations with the dollar. India, on the other hand, over the last, you know, three, four, six months or so, has been remarkably stable. It's had high interest rates, uh, but what's also been incredibly sort of interesting or perhaps frustrating if you're on the other side of the coin is that the the central bank has been effectively intervening to, to keep interest rates, uh, to keep the exchange rate almost stable, right? It, it's crushed volatility. It's squeezed out any part, you know, any possibility of short sellers uh, uh, in, in the market. Uh, and and, it, and effectively, it's 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 kept the, the Indian rupee as uh, a very effective uh, uh, carry currency in, in, in the region you know it's got pretty high interest rates it's been very stable uh, and and you know uh, uh, there, there's a very bullish narrative building around uh indian bonds because of the, the fact that it's going to be um sort of uh, uh included in some of these global indices later this year so so definitely you know i think on indian assets people are are, are really sort of uh, constructive and and i think that that's in very much contrast to as you said right these gyrations these fluctuations these re-evaluations on the path to the fed and, and the U.S. economy. So, so I think in that context, um, you know, we're still constructive. We've been constructive for quite a while. It was one of our key sort of calls uh, uh, at the end of last year in, in our year ahead. And I think you know, from the fact that you know it's stable, it's got carry uh, that you know perhaps leaves it open to relative opportunities against other currencies, which you think uh, might weaken a little bit because of fundamentals or relative interest rate differences. So, can I ask you about? Um the policy strategy behind keeping the currency in such a stable range, because I feel like for so many economies across the world, currency, you know, for better or for worse, has been a big impact on inflation, right? There are some central banks that are very aggressively leaning against currency, have been leaning against currency weakness at times. 
uh, to try and encourage lower inflation. There certainly there were bygone eras where central banks were uh, pushing in the other direction, trying to fight back against the weak dollar um, for you know for growth related reasons as well. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the strategy you think? Why Indian? The, why the Indian authorities have been trying to keep the currency relatively range bound? And do you think? What do you think the conditions that might be needed for them to maybe allow for a bit more currency uh, volatility? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's almost like to me this seems like a bit like a, like a question about like, oh, you know, what's your favorite Marvel movie or, or or something like that, right? Because every every analyst has their own favorite theory, uh, and and the RBI have been so tight lipped. Uh, about the currency to the extent that you you can basically never get anything out of them at any of the press conferences. So for us, you know, our our, our sort of fan theory, right, if you will, is that um, you know, on the one hand, they they do want to replenish their uh, their dollar reserves uh, as the dollar was appreciating. They leaned very heavily against that uh, because you know this uh, memory of the taper tantrum in 2013, you know, where they saw something like a 20% depreciation over the course of one one or two quarters, uh, was still, I guess like left a very very deep impression. So so they leaned heavily against currency depreciation, rightly so. Uh, they drew down a lot of the reserves. And 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 them, you know, I think hitting the currency into this very, very tight range uh, has helped them replenish some of their reserves by selling rupees and obviously buying dollars, right? Now that their reserves are sort of back to where they were uh, earlier, about 600 plus billion US dollars, people are saying, you know, what's next? I think for us, it, it, there, there are sort of two considerations, right? Um, our, our sort of, again, fan theories that number one, you have sort of the elections uh, coming up later this year. Uh, and, and, and the fact of the matter is that, you know, I think across all sectors of the economy, uh, uh, financial sectors and economic sectors, you want to try to keep growth humming. You want to try to keep, you know, uh, financial conditions stable. And that's probably a big part of it. Second part that we think is, is probably a big consideration here is, is attracting uh, sort of uh, portfolio inflows and investment inflows, right? You know, you, you keep a stable political environment, right, in the elections. You keep stable policy, right? Again, elections. Uh, we think that uh, uh, Modi is going to win another term in office, which means that policy continuity, you know, very favorable environment towards foreign firms, uh, investment, and manufacturing. So it's similar in, in a sense to China because you know, it seems like both of these major economies, major Asian economies, are very much trying to compete for for different parts of the manufacturing share. And it seems like, at least thematically, at a very very high level, uh, part of that involves you know trying to stabilize the currency. Yeah, I feel like in a world of you know at times instability and lots of uncertainty, um, you know, a central bank pushing towards stability and. You know, in the currency is uh, is certainly understandable in that sense, and I think you know you really sort of wrapped it up nicely when talking about the election because you know India is one of many major economies that's going to be uh, holding critical elections later this year, along with uh, with Taiwan that we brought up at the outset. So I think that's all we have time for today, Galvin. I want to thank you for joining, and to our listeners, thank you very much for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider liking it and subscribing to our channel so that you get our podcasts when they're released. Thank you very much. <laughs>